You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting. And we're betting that you might just find them interesting as well. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, some actors are household names, while others are better classified as, I know I've seen her somewhere before, I just can't remember where. What does it take to actually be considered an A-list actor? We'll tell you. When it comes to music for children, there is no bigger brand than the 20-year-old Kids Bop. But do we really need to replace the top 40 with kid-friendly renditions? It's one of those things that we all hope never happens to us. Lost, alone, in the middle of the ocean, left to die. This week we answer the question, how long can a human being actually survive at sea? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. All right, Jay. Last week, we talked about casting directors and how important they are to the ultimate creation of a movie or a television show. And, well, we actually had a few Commute listeners pick up on something that I guess I kept saying during the segment. Multiple times during the casting director discussion, I dropped the line, A-list actor, meaning the actors who are the cream of the crop, the top dogs, the A-list. Well, Jay, multiple people had the same great question. What exactly is the A-list and how do people get on it? Well, here at Commute, we live to serve. So this week, let's explore the mecca of titles, the Everest of the acting world, Jay, we are going to explore the A-list. Yeah, the way you're talking about it, it sounds kind of mysterious, almost like it's the Freemasons or something like that. (laughs) Actually, we should do a segment on the Freemasons. I watched an incredible documentary uh, about something called the Bohemian Grove, which I think about it at least once a week before I go to bed. Yeah, we'll put it in the pocket. But you're right, Jay. It, it, It is mysterious. But we hear it all the time, right? Such and such is on the A-list. Such and such is an A-lister. It's a jargony phrase that gets used so often, we don't even stop to think about it really anymore. But does such a list actually exist? Well, yes, it does actually exist. And while the criteria may be constantly changing for how you get on the A-list, Jay, the usefulness of it has still remained even today. So let's start here. In 1998, an entertainment journalist named James Ulmer used surveys to gain input from producers, agents, and studio execs to create what is called the Ulmer Scale. The Ulmer Scale uses an algorithm based on different factors, things like professionalism, willingness to travel, talent, career management, and risk factors to determine an actor's bankability. And that's what these A-list, B-list, C-list rankings are based on, Jay, bankability. Bankability basically means it's whether or not an actor can likely carry a movie to financial success based on name recognition alone. Jay, this important attribute ultimately, as I said, separates the A-listers from the B-listers and the B-listers from the dreaded 
C-listers. Bankability is how major casting decisions get made. An A-lister, somebody like Tom Hanks, commands a pretty decent salary, so movie execs want to be sure that people will flock to see the actor, even if the movie itself doesn't get incredible reviews. And Jay, it gets so complicated that even A-list talent can be separated into groups. Things like likable A-listers, like Tom Hanks. Franchise A-listers, like Robert Downey Jr. for his role as Iron Man in the Marvel movies. Or gravitas A-listers, like George Clooney. Clooney looks like a movie star, has the mysterious it factor, and boasts a long list of well-reviewed, financially successful movies. Even James Ulmer himself knows that the legendary A-list status gets harder and harder to peg with each passing year. Ulmer told the Washington Post, the shelf lives of A-listers are just so much shorter now. Basically, you find a lot more actors having that spark of an A-list spark. The ability to structure a career almost as completely and militantly as somebody like Tom Cruise, who conquered Hollywood hit after hit, is very tough to find now. Well, outside of A-listers, how about the other lists? Ulmer defines the B-list as the place for actors that are household names but can't necessarily carry a movie on their own. That list would include people like Kate Hudson, Vince Vaughn, Paul Giamatti, names you know and and movies maybe even you love, but you're not going to necessarily go to the movies just to see that person. C-listers? Well, these are the actors that get consistent work but fall more in the, oh, I know who that person is, I've seen them somewhere category or are perhaps best well-known for their time on a reality television show. So The Bachelor, for example, I'm sure you know plenty of them. How about D-listers? Well, believe it or not, D-listers are not an actual ranking on the Ulmer scale. So people like myself, who would land on the D-list, folks who have made appearances in movies, like my star turn in the very popular documentary Super Size Me, are left out in the cold. I sort of picture this like there's like a shared Excel spreadsheet that's just kind of shared between movie executives, and it's got different tabs, you know, A, B, C, and D with just lists and contact info, and you can just scroll through it easily. But it seems like that's not really the case. So you're telling me more like uh, A-list is almost kind of like an idea. It's not really a super formal type title. Yeah, you know, there are like, like Will Smith, for example. So Will Smith has been considered an A-lister for a long time. He's got a lot of name recognition because he's been in so many popular movies. Uh, he's got famous kids. He's got a famous wife. All of those things make him popular. But... As uh, he has had some drama play out in uh, the headlines as of late, it started to make him shift a little bit towards the B-list because he has some risk factors attached to him. So as Almer says in that quote, it's really hard for somebody to stay on the A-list for a long time, like Tom Cruise or even like Will Smith has, because it's almost just like a cultural moment for people now. So in this next segment, we're going to talk about the music empire that is Kids Bop. And Dave, I know that you're familiar with Kids Bop because sometimes whenever you're at a party, uh, you'll think it's funny to play Kids Bop songs through the speakers. And usually you take the joke about 
three songs too far. Well, first of all, it's not that I think it's funny. It is funny to play the kids' bop songs at parties, and I resent the fact that you say I play it three songs too long. I've got videos, actually, video evidence of people at said parties really enjoying themselves. (laughs) And it's funny because I have one party... It's, it's, so it's a video of me at a party playing kids' bop songs. People are singing. People are dancing. There's only one person not enjoying themselves, and that just so happens to be you. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, just say, hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna come out guns a blazing, be ready for the shots to be fired back at you. Well, if you're not like Dave and you're not familiar with what it is, uh, Kids Bop <laughs> is an organization that records kid-friendly versions of the biggest pop hits. If you've heard it on Top 40 Pop Radio in the past 20 years, chances are better than not that Kids Bop has a family-friendly version of it. They release three albums a year and have ventured into recording original songs recently as well, which they release monthly typically accompanied by music videos. They do more than 60 live shows a year across the U.S., and thousands of kids audition to be a part of the team every year. Kids Bop has sold more than 22.5 million albums since its inception in 2001, and in the age of streaming, Kids Bop dominates the physical media music market. In fact, majority of the company's music sales come in the form of physical media still somehow. Kids Bop has over 20 albums in the top 10 of the Billboard Top 200 chart. And if you needed to know this, Dave, there actually is a serious XM station that plays Kids Bop on loop 24-7. Uh, the group has over 3 billion plays on Spotify and has launched some pretty impressive entertainment careers, most notably that of actress Zendaya. What makes Kids Bop appealing, really, what is the entire pull of it? is that it attempts to straddle that line between popular music that young people want to listen to and parents' concern of the content of popular songs. Kids Bop camps out somewhere in the middle by removing content from songs that may be sexually suggestive or mentions of drug and alcohol use and replaces them with more tame and watered-down versions. Some examples include the phrase, the day I die to the day I fly, drunk to (laughs) lost, tattoo to hairdo, Marilyn Manson to we relaxin', a lyric referencing strawberry champagne on ice in a Bruno Mars song, for example, was changed to strawberry milkshakes. But Kids Bop also makes some strange choices along the way, too, such as replacing a line from a One Republic song that reads, With every broken bone, I swear I lived, to with every broken heart, I swear I lived. I guess broken bones are sort of off the table here. <laughs> Moral gray areas are cleaned up, too, such as the line, and I feel something so wrong doing the right thing to I feel something so right doing the right thing. Other songs such as Seven Rings by Ariana Grande and Dave, get ready to use the bleep button here, uh, get a complete overhaul. Bottles of Bubbles was replaced with It Won't Burst My Bubble. Been through some bad <laughs> I should be a sad... (laughs) Sorry. All right. Been through some bad I should be a sad was replaced with Been through the baddest, I should be the saddest. The song Truth Hurts by Lizzo took the iconic line, I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% that... To Turns out I'm 100% that kid. And you could have had a bad... 
non-committal was switched to you could have had a good friend non-committal. Now, you know, objectively, I know why Kids Bop changed the lyrics in Bruno Mars and Cardi B's song Finesse from My Big Fat Got All Them Boys Hooked to The Big Dance Moves Got All Them Kids Hooked. (laughs) But, you know, you start to wonder why even choose these songs to begin with. I guess it fundamentally makes sense why you change the violence of the line. I crashed my car into a bridge. I watched I Let It Burn from the Icona pop song I Love It to... I drove your car across the bridge. I watched you let it turn. I mean, yeah, I don't really want my toddler saying that at daycare, I guess. <laughs> Ultimately, too, in the grand scheme of things, Dave, we have to ask the question, does it even matter? Like, can parents even take pop culture and mold it into a new image? Uh, in an article for Vox, Aditi Shrikant cites a 2017 study on the effects of censorship, and the study found that replacing the phrases doesn't exactly wipe the lyrical recognition from children's minds if they've heard the original song at some point. Kizbop has also received criticism in the past for certain edits, such as a 2011 edit of Lady Gaga's Born This Way, which removed any references to homosexuality, race, or ethnicity. Uh, Kidsbop as a product, too, really embodies our cultural debate around censorship as a whole, right? Like, censorship in America has long prioritized censoring language above really anything else. Shows can show shootings but can't say a curse word as if the word is somehow worse. At some point, do we ask ourselves if our culture just generally has an objective content problem? Or do we just paint it over with lyrical patches and call it a day? Can a middle ground like Kids Bop really truly solve the core content issue here? And also, there's sort of just the question of, is it okay fundamentally to edit someone's art in this sort of way? Kids Bop doesn't actually even need permission of the artist to Frankenstein their music, only permission of the label. Now, artists do get paid royalties, if you are wondering, for the makeovers of their songs. But still, at what point do we just let music be what it is, even if it carries the risk of my kid asking me, Hey, Daddy, what's liquor mean from the back seat? I thought I had a great nugget. I was trying to find an interview with a former kids bopper, like hoping that maybe they were talking about how it's a, it had ruined their life or whatever, something kind of funny. Actually, what I came upon was an article that said, believe it or not, every member from Kids Bop 1 is now dead. And so I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is perfect. This is the nugget I was looking for. No, it was a site like The Onion that writes fake articles, and uh, so it wasn't real. <laughs> Just really funny. <laughs> All right, Jay, and finally, we finish here this week. You know, college is an interesting time where you probably meet more new people than you ever will during any other period in your life. You and I both went to the same university, a university with a pretty decent enrollment. Varies anywhere from fifteen to 20,000, depending on the semester. And we both definitely met some fascinating characters while in school. One of those characters is a person I will refer to by a pseudonym in this story, a guy named Chris Hooper. <laughs> don't, do that. don't do this to me. I already know where this is going. <laughs> Jay, I am sure you remember this unbelievable story that I am about to tell. But for our audience, Hooper was kayaking alone one evening when his boat overturned and dumped him out, leaving him stranded in the middle of the ocean. 
Now, Hooper somehow miraculously found his way back to shore nearly 10 hours after his accident. I mean, there were even search helicopters out looking for this guy. And Jay, even though most of us will never find ourselves in the same position as him, it is a story that I think represents one of our greatest fears, being lost and alone at sea. What was my favorite part of hearing that story for the first time was that we didn't even hear it from the person. We heard it from someone else, and we had known this person for years. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) uh, this other sort of mutual friend was like, yeah, you know he got lost at sea, right? (laughs) We were like... Huh? It was kind of like we went home. We went home for summer break, and when we came back, how'd you spend your summer break? Oh, I went to the beach. You? Oh, I was actually lost. Yeah, and, at sea and you know, I expected day. the story to be like, oh yeah, he was, uh, you know, on a cruise ship or something on the cruise ship. No, it was like, oh yeah, he literally had to cling to a buoy and like eat urchins off the side for hours to stay alive or something. <laughs> but Jay, the Hooper story has always stuck with me and raises the question: How long? Can a person actually survive alone at sea? Well, while the exact length of time you can survive probably has too many variables to ever accurately nail down, a 2017 study in the Journal of Diving and Hyperbaric Medicine took its best shot at an answer by studying the amazing story of a man named Robert Hemet. In February of 2006, Robert Hemet was scuba diving off the coast of New Zealand. An experienced Navy diving instructor with over two decades of dives under his belt, Hemet told his diving buddy during an outing that he would just meet up with him at shore in a bit that he was going to do a solo dive. What happened next, Jay, is the stuff of my nightmares. When Hemet emerged, the shore was nowhere to be seen. His buddy, obviously gone, and the dive boat that brought them out had left the area. The tide had pulled him at hundreds of meters out to sea and away from help. He was cold and he was alone. Well, to cut to the end of the story, Hemet does somehow survive. He was alone at sea for four days and three nights, though, Jay. Roughly 75 hours before he was spotted by rescue boats. So how did he do it? The journal research, led by physiologist Heather Massey of the University of Portsmouth, set out to answer that question. For starters, the most immediate challenge to him it was that the water temperature, hovering right around 61 degrees, was well below his body temperature. Immersion in cold water like this produces what experts call the four-stage response. Cold shock response, peripheral muscle cooling, deep body cooling, and the fourth stage, which few like Hemet ever reach, the circumrescue phase. Hemet's key defense against the first stage of cold shock response was his custom-fit wetsuit, a wetsuit that most divers would not be equipped with. The suit helped keep Hemet from fully experiencing hypothermia. The next stage, muscle cooling, meant that Hemet's muscle power significantly dropped taking away his ability to swim. A flotation device, though, built into his diving gear kept his head above water. As if things for him weren't bad enough at this point, the third stage is where things really went south. Body cooling affects your physical and mental functions, resulting in periodic loss of consciousness. It's here that most folks don't make it. 
The fourth stage, circumrescue, is performed during the rescue. Hemet was thankfully rescued in a way that kept his body horizontal. This helped keep the blood flowing to his brain when he exited the water. Aside from the cold water, though, Jay, Hemet also dealt with dehydration, only drinking an estimated half liter of rainwater each day, the deterioration of his body from prolonged time in the wetsuit and the water, which included, and honestly, I can barely say this, sea lice all over his body. Oh. Oh. And perhaps the scariest of all challenges, the psychological breakdown. By day three, he says he was constantly fighting suicidal urges. So Jay, obviously, Hewitt's training helped him both physically and mentally to survive this insane situation. Less experienced divers would probably have no chance, or at least significantly less of one, to survive. But what makes all of this so incredible to me is that it's a real-life look into the extreme capabilities our bodies possess to keep us alive, especially in an unbelievable situation like this one, one we all hope and pray we never encounter. Takeaway, if you are a professional with lots of training, you can probably survive three to four days. If you're not, and you're somebody like our good buddy Hooper, you can maybe make it 10 hours. So I know we've talked before uh, which one of us would make it in prison the longest, and I know there's kind of a long-running debate about that, but now I'm kind of wondering, you know, which one of us do you think would survive dropped in the sea the longest? Well, you are an Eagle Scout, as we've talked That's about. That's true. So. There is no sea survival merit badge. Exactly. You're probably, you're probably a bit more resourceful than me, but I also have a lot more street smarts than you, which street I feel like really like helped me. Street smarts in the ocean, you yeah, well, well, which would translate into ocean smarts in this kind of situation. So they would, that would probably help me survive. Also, I'm very tough mentally. Uh, so I think that I would outlive you and outlive you by at least a few days. So the man who th- who will not go in the ocean past his ankles thinks he could survive longer than me at sea. You know, before we close out, I kind of feel like I should apologize to the listeners. I mean, we're a family-friendly show, and... Uh, man, those words that I quoted earlier, they they're, they don't reflect who I am. I was just quoting the lyrics from some songs. Well, I mean, you did say it. So if you want an unedited version of this show, just send us a message. I'd be happy to apply. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.